Hi, welcome to this reading of the Business Record, Central Iowa's Business Weekly. I'm Pat Steele. All material heard on IRIS is intended for the use of listeners with print disabilities. And now here's our first story from the October 20th edition of the Business Record. Drake Forum will focus on identifying, measuring, and managing risk. The Drake Risk and Opportunity Forum on October 26th and 27th will allow participants to connect and learn from professionals managing risk in financial and non-financial organizations. Discussion topics for the forum include exploring artificial intelligence applications, assessing cyber risk size and frequency, delving into investment risk management, and learning about the application impacts of rating agency use of environmental, social, and governance criteria. The forum will also feature two chief risk officer panels with industrial company executives and insurance company executives. The October 26th session will begin at 1 p.m. in the October 27th session at 8 a.m. in the Cowles Library Reading Room at Drake University in Des Moines. The events are hybrid, in-person, virtual, and free to attend. Local competitors raised more than $120,000 during the Wild Prairie Showdown. The Great Outdoors Foundation and Icon Water Trails announced that the third annual Wild Prairie Showdown on October 12, presented by Moulton and Mank, raised more than $120,000 for conservation and outdoor recreation initiatives. The Wild Prairie Showdown is a competition to name the MVP, our most valuable philanthropist. The record-setting fundraising total from this year's event will support both the Great Outdoors Foundation and Icon Water Trails. The Wild Prairie Showdown, which marked the end of an eight-week fundraising campaign, also featured a fashion show and interview panel showcasing the stars of the Wild Prairie Showdown. The group included Team Icon Water Trails, Prokum Bakum of uh, Principal Financial Group, and Emily Naylor of Bolton and Meck, as well as Team Great Outdoors Foundation's Rona Baronovitz of Athene and Afton Holt of Corner Post Marketing. Team Icon Water Trails received the Team MVP Award, while Naylor won the individual MVP title. The Great Outdoors Foundation also publicly launched its conservation fund, which is designed to multiply investment in water quality. German ag tech company establishing U.S. headquarters at the Iowa State University Research Park. BioCV, a Bochum, Germany-based software company, has announced it will establish its United States headquarters at Iowa State University Research Park. The company developed a livestock monitoring solution which enables continuous monitoring of animals and provides insights into animal physiology and well-being. According to a news release, BioCV uses Bluetooth sensor ear tags, which are designed to collect and certify real-time data on each animal in a decentralized manner. The technology aims to transform animal farming practices and enable farmers to make data-driven decisions and improve animal welfare. We aim to forge a future where technology and research converge to elevate the standards of livestock farming, ensuring sustainability, productivity, and animal welfare. And that's a statement from BioCV CEO Moritz Gansel. Next week, the BioCV team will visit Iowa State to explore potential partnerships and initiate research validation studies, 
for its solution in the United States. A public event recognizing the company's U.S. headquarters will be held October 24th from 3 to 4 p.m. at the Iowa State University Economic Development Corps facility, and that's located at 1805 Collaboration Place in Ames. Des Moines-based contractor Mackinac shifting to employee ownership. Mackinac Corporation, a Des Moines-based excavating and earth-moving contractor, has announced his change to employee ownership after 56 years as a family-owned company. Mackinac CEO Doug Mackinac said in a news release that the move to an employee stock ownership plan is meant to preserve the company's culture and brand while providing new performance incentives for workers. Mackinac said in a prepared statement, Employee ownership allowed us to achieve those goals while ensuring an ownership transition that rewards our employees and preserves Mackinac as a company for generations to come. We are still a family business, but the family just got bigger, he said in that prepared statement. The decision to become employee-owned was shared with Mackinac employees in an event October 13th, and the transition to the new stock ownership program was effective September 15th. Mackinac uh, specializes in large-scale mass grading and underground utility projects for public and private sector projects running from residential and commercial developments to highways, industrial parks, and flood control levees, according to the company's website. Mackinac's uh, portfolio includes site work on the 88,000-square-foot Lowerson Skate Park on the Principal Riverwalk, Doug Mackinich also contributed at least $100,000 to the project. Employee stock ownership plans are becoming an increasingly popular method for companies to bridge the gap between employees and corporate success, according to a September 30th report from Yahoo Finance. Ed Origer, Mackinich president and chief operating officer, said in a prepared statement, After over 55 years in business, this is a real milestone for us. This move offers valuable benefits to our employees and to our clients. Employees can continue to work and retire with dignity. Employee ownership also motivates employees around our shared success by encouraging them to think and act like an owner. This builds engagement, supports longevity, and makes our culture of teamwork even stronger. Interest rates, labor market among concerns of local architects, still optimism exists about 2024 and opportunities to rethink existing spaces. This is an article written by Kathy Bolton of the Business Record. A recent AIA Deltec Architectural Buildings Index showed that business conditions are softening at the nation's architect firms and that there is a dwindling amount of work in the pipeline. Specifically, there has been 11 consecutive months of flat billing nationwide in the Midwest region, which includes Iowa. The August score was 48.1. Any score below 50 indicates decreasing business conditions. A year ago, the Midwest region score was above 50. The business record reached out to architects at four firms and asked them to share their thoughts on current business conditions and the outlook for the first half of 2024. We also asked them to share their biggest challenges facing Iowa architect firms and what they are optimistic about, and below are their responses. First person we're going to hear from is Russell Bitterman. He's the managing partner at ID8 Architecture. He says, ID8 is a smaller architectural firm that mainly works in the private business. We do not currently have any government or public entity projects. We have seen the market conditions soften since the beginning of 2023. 
I think the specific main contribution, main contributor, I should say, has been rising interest rates and concerns about the economy in general. Added on top of the struggles with the labor market, increased building costs and continuing supply chain issues has made for a pretty strong headwind for developers and businesses. It appears that government spending programs has directly helped maintain the activity on public construction projects more than the private sector. The tight labor market, supply chain, and inflation continues to dampen the improvement in the economy. It seems that businesses are pausing discretionary improvements or new construction until everything has a chance to address, adjust and balance out. When the business environment improves, our businesses adjust to new conditions. There may be a strong backlog of new projects. Next person is Jeff Blosser. Jeff is the Director of Architecture at Shift. We've seen large corporate interior projects in the pre-pandemic years slow down. Development projects are also slower to start due to rising interest rates and the higher cost of capital. With increased remote options, building owners are looking for new ways to reuse commercial properties, so we've assisted building owners in reimagining their spaces. We anticipate that work will continue as well as guiding smaller organizations during moves to spaces not available pre-pandemic. Challenges include finding the right staff during a strong job market. There seems to be a shortage of architects with mid-level experience. Interest rates are another challenge. Projects may not make sense financially and eventually may be paused or canceled. Helping owners with alternatives to offset interest rates is an ongoing focus for our design and construction teams. We are optimistic about the future of commercial real estate. There are a lot of opportunities to rethink space and delivery methods. The next person the business record interviewed for this article was Carl Chambers, and he's president of Imprint Architectures. And he says, I would rate our current business as strong to extremely strong with a very good outlook for 2024. A lot of our work is in the sports, entertainment, and hospitality market where, based on booked work and current outstanding proposals, we are anticipating a 30% increase in billings over the next 6 to 12 months. We have seen a slowdown in the large to mid-sized retail projects, but we still see demand in smaller boutique-style retail establishments centered around experiential shopping. The custom and luxury residential markets have also taken a small hit with the, small hit, I should say, with the current interest rate market. The biggest challenge I see is in the current labor market. The strong construction development economy has put a high demand on qualified and experienced architects. This combined with increasing wages due to runaway inflation has led to rampant poaching of employees through recruiters and headhunters with offers of wage increases that will not be sustainable once the market takes even a small turn for the worse. I see the disparity between direct wages compared to billable rates continuing to grow until the construction market slows down. I'm optimistic about the future, my belief in the human spirit to overcome adversity, especially in Iowa. And next person is Becky Hansel. She's a partner in Vision Architecture. And she says, over the past decade, we have experienced significant and sustained growth. And while we expect this growth to persist, it will likely be at a more moderate rate into the first half of 2024. Our backlog is strong and our current planning work under contract will drive utilization in 2024 and beyond. 
We acknowledge industry challenges, but remain resilient with a proactive approach to market diversification, where healthcare and education provide stability for our business. Two major challenges for Iowa architect firms include market uncertainty and talent shortages. Economic factors like interest rates, financing limitations, inflation, and supply chain issues are impacting project viability with a higher risk that projects could be put on hold. Additionally, the growing demand for architects competes with a shortage of top-tier talent, complicating efforts to maintain consistent growth. She concludes by saying, I'm optimistic about the architectural profession's drive to find innovative solutions for pressing issues like climate change, health, and social equity. Despite a history of slow change, there's a newfound openness to quickly enact purposeful change in practice in the built environment, which could be truly transformational. As we continue with this week's business record, our next uh, article is actually a column by Dave Elbert. It's called The Elbert Files, and his title this week is Roadside Iowa. He writes, I'm a sucker for roadside attractions. When I saw the new book, Secret Iowa, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure, which costs $27 and is published by St. Louis-based Reedy Press, I had to have it. The author is Chicago native Megan Bannister, who came to Des Moines more than a decade ago to study journalism at Drake University and stayed. The 184 pages include the usual Iowa suspects, Albert the Bow and Audubon, Snake Alley in Burlington, and Dubuque's Fendelin Place Elevator. But the nearly 100 entries also spotlight several curiosities that were new to me. For example, the Marshalltown Cemetery's concrete morning chair, morning here is M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, was common in 19th century graveyards. Bannister wrote, in the home in Charles City where feminist Carrie Chapman Kent spent her, cat I should say, spent her formative years. Bannister introduced me to Iowa's wacky Arknid, a spider sculpture in Boha that consists of the body of a Volkswagen beetle held aloft by eight legs of welded steel pipe. It appears right after Grinnell's 60-foot stack of 200 rusted wagon wheels that resemble a giant, a giant menorah. Another entry involves a spooky history of Madison County's famous Roseman Covered Bridge, which figured prominently in um, Robert James Waller's Bridge, Bridges of Madison County novel and the subsequent movie. You'll have to read Secret Iowa to get the full story of two 19th century disappearances at the bridge one involving romance, the other centered on crime. There are circus stories, including composer Carl King, who wrote more circus music than anyone, including songs for Barnum and Bailey and Buffalo Bill Cody before taking a job conducting the Fort Dodge Municipal Band in 1920 and helping to write Iowa's 1921 band law, allowing cities to levy a small tax to support local music. Two stories involve elephants, Baby Mine was a young elephant promoted by the Des Moines Register and purchased with donations from Iowa children for the Depression-era 1929 Iowa State Fair. An elephant of a different sort made of fiberglass originally appeared at the 1964 Republican National Convention before it was painted pink and installed outside the Pink Elephant Supper Club in Marquette. Pinky even impressed President Jimmy Carter in 1979 when he witnessed the colorful uh, being, being towed on giant water skis. Finally, 
Bannister has a fresh take on the Cardiff Giant, a favorite 19th century hoax. The Giant was carved from a huge piece of Fort Dodge, Fort Dodge gypsum during the 1860s for prankster George Hall, a New York agnostic who used it to foil a littlest minister who argued a biblical quote about giants was true. Hall buried the sculpture on a farm near Cardiff, New York, where it was discovered a year later and proclaimed by authorities to be the mummified remains of a giant human. The fake was put on display and sold to a touring sideshow. Eventually, the ruse unwound and the Iowa origin of the gypsum was discovered. But that did not stop gawkers from paying to see the giant stone as it moved from sideshows to museums before winding up in the 1930s south of Grand Home of the Des Moines Register publisher Gardner Mike Cowles. His 1985 memoir, Mike Looks Back, revealed that his seven-year-old son and playmates smashed the delicate part of the giant's anatomy with a hammer. Kyle said a craftsman repaired the damage before he sold the artifact to a museum in Cooperstown, New York, where it resides today. Bannister does not mention the Kyle's connection or the damage to the original statue, but she added a piece of information I did not know. She wrote that in 1980, sculptor Cliff Carlson created a duplicate, a fake of the fake, that resides in Fort Dodge's Fort Museum in Frontier Village. The photo shows the newer giant with a fig leaf covering any evidence of injury that might have occurred to the original. And again, that was Albert's file, a columnist written by David Albert. Um, he's a columnist for the business record. As we continue with the October 20th edition of the Business Record, this is a column written by Susan Susanna DeBaca, and it's entitled On Leadership and Communication is a Key in Family Businesses. This column is the third in a series on family-owned businesses, and Susanna DeBaca writes this. While clear communications are critical in any business, family-owned companies often face unique challenges when talking about the enterprise. Family issues and feelings can complicate conversations about decision-making authority in the future. Roger Bullock, the partner of Bright Star Capital Partners, in a recently released 2023 North American Family Business Report from Camden and Bright Star, writes this, Family dynamics are often challenging, whether running a business or sitting down during Thanksgiving dinner. In that report, respondents indicated that family members often feel uncomfortable discussing sensitive issues and believe that families need to invest more time in the succession planning. Furthermore, 80% of respondents recommended establishing regular communication channels among family members to help them resolve business-related conflicts. A family business survey by PwC echoes the need for frequent, clear communication to foster trust and manage expectations, especially relating to next generation planning. Family members want to know what the business is doing, how it is doing, and how they fit in it, either as current or future shareholders or as employees. The PwC report says that whether your family's business is in its fifth generation or its first, thoughtful planning and governance that focuses on policy, succession planning, and communication supports both foundation and evolving trust. Again, the columnist for this article, Susanna DeBaca, reached out to some top leaders in family businesses to ask about the unique complexities of communicating within a family-owned business and for advice on best practices. 
First person she talked to was Tim Bianco. He's the president and CEO of Iowa Spring Manufacturing and Sales, Southern Atlantic Spring. And Tim writes, my father built Iowa Spring and over the years acquired other businesses coming in and out of the main business due to acquisitions and changes in lifestyle. His exits and entries were challenging for me, the only member of the next generation to choose to work in the business. While I was able to build on his success, my takeaway is that often family business strategy in planning for the future can be in the head of the founder. In our case, the handoff to me was not always clear and involved big differences in our leadership styles. That sometimes caused friction or confusion, but it also created the opportunity to learn and develop new and different skills that enabled me to grow the enterprise and clarify my own values. Now armed with those learnings, I'll use a different approach with my own kids as well as the team members, all part of the family. That is our business. Next up was Dan Binken. Dan is the director of the UNI Family Business Center, and he writes, Communication is the most critical component of family succession planning and family business harmony in general. An Iowa family business member once told me, clear is kind, unclear is unkind. I think about that phrase every day as it is so true. Assumptions destroy a business family when open, inclusive conversations aren't happening. Start by having family meetings focused on your values and vision. Use that to get on the same page and then continue those meetings around strategy, business performance, and most importantly, family concerns. Talk with other families. You are not alone in dealing with the mixing of family and businesses. Next up is Lori Schaefer-Wheaton. She's the president of the Agra Industrial Plastics Company. She writes, I am the second generation owner, president of a manufacturing company my dad started in 1978. From the day I stepped into the company, my goal was to be a valued member of the team and to earn my stripes along the way. My dad and I have always been close, but you have to recognize that working together is a whole new experience. As much as we both love our company, we had to have rules in place so that we could have the boss-employee relationship and preserve the father-daughter relationship at the same time. Early on, we decided to only talk about work, when at work, or when a specific time was scheduled, not during Thanksgiving dinner. This was not only good for our relationship, but for the rest of the family as well. Now this uh, question uh, posed by uh, the author regarding advice from family owners, business leaders on, on business leaders on effective communication practices. The first bit of advice they said was to have intentional, inclusive conversations. Binken notes that families who have planned inclusive conversations are more successful than families who engage in a spattering of informal one-off conversations in the heat of the moment. Bacon says, having crucial conversations in this fashion is a recipe for disaster and the main reason why only about 30% of family businesses survive the second generation and a paltry 13% make it to the third. Intentional meetings can take the form of a regular family meeting with an agenda and the opportunity for everyone to participate including both passive and active family members, and can be invaluable in keeping everyone on the same page. Another bit of advice was build trust by sharing information. Bianco recalls that his father had an old-school approach to management where only the top three or four leaders in the organization knew his vision. 
Holding that information tight did not build trust and, in Bianco's opinion, held the companies back. He developed his own style over time, one that involved communicating more openly. I meet with and address our entire workforce quarterly, sharing my vision, our wins and our losses, learning from our mistakes, he says. Everyone in our organization knows where we are headed. The next bit of advice was, was to demonstrate trust through listening. Schaefer Wheaton observes that communication is best when one focuses on listening, not just talking or preserving or presenting your side. My dad is very analytical, so I figured out early on that the best approach was to provide all the data ahead of any conversation, she says, noting that with any healthy work relationship, there has to be mutual respect and trust for the relationship to be productive. She reflects, I am very thankful that we have that as our foundation. And then the final bit of advice was, have patience. When it comes to conversations about succession, Binken advises that leaders recognize it will take time to get the conversations right. I've never tried it, but I've heard it said that to knock over a Coke machine, it doesn't just happen with one push. You've got to rock it back and forth a few times, he says. Succession planning is like that, Coke machine. It's a bit of a tug-of-war between the outgoing and incoming generations, and a big part of that is simply having patience. And again, this is a column written by Susanna DeBaca of the Business Record, and it's about leadership, and this was the third in the series that she has written. You are listening to this week's edition of the Business Record, October 20th, 2023. Our thanks to the folks at Business Publications for providing a copy of the Business Record to Iris so that we can read it for you. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at 515-243-6833. Now back to the business record. Our next article is entitled A Closer Look. Cody Christensen, who's the Development Services Director of the City of Des Moines, Kathy Bolton of the business record wrote this article. When Cody Christensen began college, his goal was to major in animal ecology so that he could work outdoors in some type of role in natural resources or ecology. He soon learned, though, that to land a job in an area he was interested in likely meant moving out of state. Christensen in May, who was named the City of Des Moines Development Service Director, said, The more I got into it, the more I realized it's hard to make a living doing that type of work. And unless I was willing to move on to state, I realized I wasn't going to get very far in it. I have family and friends in Iowa. I grew up here, and I wanted to stay here. Christensen, who worked on construction jobs during college, changed his focus to construction engineering. But that, too, had its downsides. During the internship, Christensen noted that project managers typically worked up to 80 hours a week and that the pace was year-round. He said, I anticipated having a family someday, too, and that type of commitment is pretty tough on family life. So I shifted back to animal ecology. I graduated in 2004 with that degree, but also with enough construction experience that I could make a good living. He was hired as a building inspector for the city of Ankeny after his graduation from Iowa State in 2004. About two and a half years later, he joined the city of Des Moines as a building inspector. Uh, Kathy Bolton recently had a chance to interview Christensen, and she posed these questions to him. The first one, what did you learn from your first job in Ankeny as a building inspector? That was my first step into a regulatory scene. I'd done the construction work, but hadn't dealt much with the regulations that set the rules of how something needs to be done to make sure that it's safe and high quality. 
What I learned was that it's a real balance and real partnership between the regulators and those who are doing the work. I learned that in order for me to be really effective, I needed to build good relationships with all the construction teams in town that were doing that line of work. If you're able to build that relationship and establish a good line of trust, you can accomplish you can accomplish the intended goal. There are always some challenges, but by having that approach, we all meet the goal of having a quality, safe product. Next question posed by uh, Kathy Bolton were, uh, what were some of the differences between working in Ankeny and Des Moines? Cody says, in Ankeny at the time, we were primarily doing single story strip mall construction, single family residential and apartment buildings. When I came to Des Moines, I was exposed to a much wider range of projects and building types. I've always enjoyed that about working in Des Moines. We have some very unique projects. We see high rises. We still do this single family residential, but we also have projects downtown that are unique and challenging. Next question to Cody, what are you taking from those first years in Des Moines to your new job? The experience I bring allows me to relate a lot more to the people who are on the other side of the table, the people that are out there on the job site. I've been out there with them working through the challenges when we run into something that was unexpected, for instance, on existing building renovations. Being able to relate to the practicality of what takes place in the field helps me with helping those teams find solutions. That's one of the things about our team that I really push. Let's focus on finding the solutions. It's really easy to get caught in debate over why something got to this point. That doesn't move us forward. If we really want to move the needle forward, we can just stay focused on finding solutions. Next question, what are some of the challenges in development? When you're dealing with an existing building, you're always uncovering something that you didn't expect to find. You might open up a wall and find that the substructure is just completely inadequate for supporting what it needs to hold up. So now you need to excavate more and expand the scope of the work to be able to make sure that the new things we're putting in will be supported. This is where this gets dicey because we need to make sure that we're putting in quality product and it needs to be safe. We also need to be able to pay for it. That's always a challenge and a balancing act. Next question, what are your goals in this new position? Cody says, I want anyone who interacts with our team, whether it's somebody that's built in Des Moines for decades or someone new from out of town coming in to do a new project, to walk away from every interaction they have with my staff with the feeling that these people are really here to help make this project work. That's the baseline that I want to set for how people perceive the interactions with the development services staff. I want them to see that we're going to welcome new concepts, new ideas. I want them to come away from the feeling that this team is really here to be a partner and to help them succeed. Right now, we're working through a series of interviews with developers, designers, property owners, realtors to get their feedback on the impact that our processes and our requirements have on them. We want to use that feedback as a way to identify some improvements that we can make. I really see what we do as kind of going back to my animal ecology days. The city is just another ecosystem. The work that we do in development services is not fixed or stationary. It has to evolve and adapt as market conditions and priorities change. Next question. Are you hearing any common themes from the people that you're talking with? One of the common themes that we've been hearing is that renovations of existing structures are challenging. In Des Moines, we have an older building stock. Oftentimes, we're competing with the suburbs that have lots of green space that can be developed. They have newer building stock that has newer infrastructure. 
or dealing with older buildings, older infrastructure that needs more improvement. A lot of the stuff that we do, we're trying to promote improvements to sites and infrastructure as investments are made in certain areas. That's a, this is a delicate balance. We need to have improvements made, but if we go for too much, then we stifle that ability to renovate these structures or to reoccupy those areas. Next question, what's the city's role in helping to preserve older structures? Cody says, it's important for the city to maintain its historic structures. You look at our neighborhoods in Des Moines, and they all have a unique character. That's something that I'm really proud of. In early September, the city council voted on the adoption of a historic preservation plan. That's something that's an action we're taking to help preserve not just the structures, but also recognize the history of the city. Next question. Part of your job is economic development. Talk about your priorities in that area. We have a number of urban renewal areas around town where we have a strategic focus on where we're placing incentives and promoting more development. I see us doing more proactive work. Our team has been doing some work with an out-of-state developer that is looking to do an affordable housing project on the former Plaza Lane site. We'll be doing more of that type of outreach to get Des Moines more recognized among out-of-state developers as a place where they can do business. We'll be working more closely with our real estate brokers on doing that. Next question, what keeps you up at night? Well, we're coming up on a presidential election. There's always that thought of what is going to happen with our national political scene. That worries me, but there's really not much we can do about it except to make sure that we're maintaining an approach that we are able to shift and adjust to changing conditions. And the final question Kathy Bolton posed to Cody was, what do you do in your spare time? Right now, I'm mainly a chauffeur for my kids, taking them to dance or hockey or whatever activity they're involved in. My family likes to travel, and I'm an outdoorsman, and I like to hunt and fish. And continuing with the business record, our next article is entitled, First Main Street Insurance Expands to Minnesota Through a New Partnership. Cedar Rapids-based First Main Street Insurance, which partners with local insurance agencies in 37 rural Iowa communities, has announced its expansion into Minnesota through a partnership with United Prairie Insurance. The deal was effective October 1st and will add 12 insurance agency locations and 21 employees to First Main Street's network, according to a news release. United Prairie Insurance is based in Mankato, Minnesota, and was previously a bank-owned agency. United Prairie General Manager Scott Yarrington joins the venture as a partner, the release said. First Main Street Insurance is an affiliate of True North Companies. Its business model focuses on agencies and rural communities, allowing the businesses to maintain a local presence while providing access to insurance products from national firm partners. First Main Street Executive Vice President Drew Bridges said in the release that First Main Street helps independent agencies remain viable part of rural America. With the current market conditions, our First Main Street model makes sense today more than ever before. Our next article is Turning Minds to Vines, World Food Prize Laureate Honored for Work to Determine War, uh, I'm sorry, to Demine War-Torn Areas, Restoring Land to Farmers. This is an article written by Michael Crum of the Business Record. Heidi Kuhn was in a minefield in Najerbaban when she learned that she had won this year's World Food Prize. It was a fitting location since this year's World Food Prize Laureate is being recognized for the work she and her foundation, Roots of Peace, are doing to remove landmines in conflict 
ravaged areas and restore that land for agricultural production. The Des Moines-based World Food Prize Foundation announced Kuhn's selection during a ceremony last spring at the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. Kuhn will officially accept the prize, which includes $250,000, during a ceremony at the Capitol in Des Moines on Thursday, October 26th. The ceremony closes out the week-long event that brings together scientists, agricultural industry leaders, and government officials from around the world to discuss hunger and strategies to combat global food insecurity. The World Food Prize was founded in 1986 by Norman Borlaug, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970 for his work to improve the world's food supply. Borlaug, a Cresco, Iowa native, who is known as the father of the Green Revolution, died in 2009. Kuhn works from the Roots of Peace headquarters in an office in the basement of her home where she has deactivated landmines as desk ornaments. Her first fundraiser was hosted by winemaker Robert Modavi, and along the way she has received financial support from the likes of Diane Disney Miller, the daughter of Walt Disney. Jeff Skoll, co-founder of eBay, contributed $1 million, which Kuhn said was leveraged over the years to grow to $200 million. Kuhn also talks about her journey as a cervical cancer survivor and how that has affected her desire to do something bigger. The business record sat down with Kuhn to discuss her selection as the 53rd World, Pri World Food Prize laureate and the impact her work is having on people who live in areas where land is being restored to grow crops. Here's some of what uh, we learned about Kuhn's journey. Her responses have been edited for length and clarity. First question they posed to her was, how did you begin your work to re remove landmines? It was a vision. It was September 21st, 1997, and the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco had a cancellation. They asked me if I would host this group of about 100 people that was doing something on landmines. It was just three weeks after Princess Diana died. It wasn't just the princess. It was her compassion and seeing her walk through the minefields of Bosnia-Herzegovina and no one was really talking about landmines before she died. So it really just came from my heart. A toast that was made, may the world go from mines to vines. And you could hear a pin drop. To take that other than a beautiful prophetic toast out of the living room of my home and to the world, that was really where the challenge started. Please describe a challenge you have faced in your work. This past Christmas Eve, the Taliban announced that women in Afghanistan could not work for an international non-governmental organization, and the women were frightened. I'm a founder of an internal NGO, National Governmental Organization, so I immediately got on the phone through Zoom, and we decided we were going to stay there. We serve no flag. We serve the farmer and adhering to the very strict rules of the regime. We're not political in any way, shape, or form. But when I spoke to my team on October 2nd, they shared with me that since February, Roots of Peace has directly worked, impacted, and paid 5,000 Afghan women. Now they're bringing kitchen gardens into the homes because they can't leave their homes without a man accompanying them. But we're bringing the fruits into their homes and the men are supported because they can feed their children. Share a story of how your work has directly affected a family or individual. One mother who was on the line, the Zoom call, was just in tears. She said she and her husband have six children. Her husband came home one day, one day and said they had to sell their 10-year-old daughter because they couldn't afford to feed the other five children and themselves. 
So she applied and somehow got to roots of peace, and we gave her a job. And with tears, she said she didn't have to sell her daughter because roots of peace employed her. Sometimes when I stay up in the middle of the night wondering what I'm doing this and this job has just gotten too hard, there's always an angel around the corner. And the World Food Prize will allow me to have this platform to get the importance of this out there. Afghanistan is a country 80% dependent upon agriculture for jobs, yet it conversely is the most heavily mined country in the world. And today, 90% unemployment. So our business model for peace, to mine, replant, rebuild, is a game changer. I believe the world can come together and we will be pivoting from Afghanistan to another tough neighborhood, and that's Ukraine. Next question they posed to her was, what does being awarded the World Food Prize do to elevate awareness around the importance of the work done by Roots, Roots of Peace? I've always been deeply inspired by Norman Borlaug, and I'd love to have this as a springboard to lead the horticultural revolution because it gives dignity to farmers. It's not just dropping food off as a band-aid and hoping it gets distributed. We are empowering the farmers with a sustainable business, a model for peace, and providing food security. I think this will help raise awareness from the heartland of America to the world. When we look at Ukraine and watch with apathy, 30% of the country is being mined. The future of humanity is at risk unless we can take stock of what we have physically done to the earth. This is a physical manifestation of the ability of humans to restore. The earth and the soil, it forgives us. And I can say since I walked my first minefield in January 2000 in Croatia, when there are 1.2 million landmines, I have seen a war-torn country go to one of the top tourist destinations in the world. If we can do that in Croatia, we can use our collective wisdom and resources to get this very expensive job of demining done. But then the land is cleansed and restored back to farmers. And again, this was an article written by Michael Crum of the Business Record, and he interviewed Heidi Kuhn, the 2023 World Food Prize laureate. Volunteers, homeowners in progress, community supporters, and local elected officials gathered in the Kimberley Crossing Development Ankeny on Monday to kick off Greater Des Moines Habitat for Humanity's Ankeny Blitz Build Kickoff. The October 16th to the 20th event will start construction on six duplex homes and nearly complete two more already underway, according to a news release. As part of the Ankeny Blitz Build, GDM Habitat has also received commitment from 23 nonprofit and for profit executives to participate in the CEO build on October 19th in the master plan community on Northeast 56th Street. The duplexes will be purchased with affordable mortgages by families who are eager to live and work in the Ankeny area. Some of the best resources and opportunities available in the Des Moines metro exist in communities like Ankeny, said Lance Henning, CEO of GDM Habitat. All of us want a choice in where we make our homes, but for the folks Habitat serves, that choice is almost always a luxury that's out of their price range. By building in communities like Ankeny and continuing to build in our traditional target neighborhoods, we can provide that choice for our home buyers. According to Habitat, up to 60% of an individual's health is determined by the zip code in which they live and can impact outcomes for children. More than 600 community volunteers, local businesses, metro area corporations, and community groups will staff the site throughout the week, according to release. They will help raise walls, mount roof trusses, 
hang siding and dry in the homes, preparing them for interior work and installation of critical systems. At the two homes already underway, volunteers will install flooring, trim doors, and hardware, and complete other finishing work to push the homes toward the purchases. The CEOs that are helping on this project include Chris Blunt from F&G, Melissa Cox of the Ankeny Area Chamber of Commerce, Rowena Crosby of Terrell International Incorporated, Rob Denson of DMAC, their president, Corey Harris, Walmart Blue Cross and Blue Shield, Lance Henning, Greater Des Moines Habitat for Humanity, Dr. Adrian Henry, Mercy College of Health Sciences, Tony Casca, Midwest Heritage Bank, Tanner Kinsler of the Kinsler Corporation, Isaiah Knox of Urban Dreams, David Ling of Miser Lumber Company, Edward McGreen of Craig Tool Company, David Nelson of West Bank, Jim Pluggy of Bank Iowa, Bob Ritz of Mercy One, Ben Roach of Nymeister Good PC, Steve Simon of South Story Bank and Trust, Travis Simpson of Northwest Bank, Brett Smith of Central Bank, John Sorensen of the Iowa Bankers Association, Zach Voss of Voss Distributing, Chris Williams of Federal Home Loan Bank of Des Moines, and Jason Willis of Willis Automotive. Continuing with our reading of the October 20th business record, a study released October 9th by World Telecommunications Industry Tax and Accounting Consulting Firm Forvis has found that the effects of inflation are cutting into profitability and could impact customer pricing in the near future. Forvis said in a news release that the study, which is based on data from 2016 to 2022, submitted by 167 companies in 19 states, is one of the largest studies for its kind in the telecom industry. The Springfield, Missouri-based consulting firm compared the data with more than two decades of financial and operational information and found operational expenses for rural telecom companies to increase by 5.1% in 2022, which is more than double the 2.4% increase in 2020. The study says those cost increases were flat in 2018 and 2019. The study also shows the cost of infrastructure and materials, including fiber optics, as well as labor, is rising, with smaller companies being hit the hardest. Operating income declined year over year among the participating telecom companies for all but the largest companies surveyed, those with more than 100 employees. The rate of inflation in 2021 and 2022 was dramatically increased over previous years, and that's having an impact on the overall profitability, bringing operating income down for the companies who surveyed. And that's a quote from study co-author Martha, Marty Fredericks. One relative bright spot of rural telecom companies, according to the study, was growth in Internet service revenue from broadband expansion, which helped offset the decline in voice and access service revenues. As of May 2023, 85 participating companies accepted $600 million of federal, state, and local government broadband grants compared to 69 companies accepting $336 million in 2021. The study says this represents a 23% increase in companies and a 79% increase in broadband grants over the amounts for 2021. These grant programs include state-administered broadband grant programs using state funds, state-apportioned federal CARES Act funds, 
and the American Rescue Plan Act funds, along with federal broadband grant programs. Overall, the average operating income as a percentage of operating revenues was 15.6%, which is significantly higher than the 2010 low of 8.6%, although still less than high water marks of more than 20% seen in the early 2000s, the Forbes report found. According to Matt McDonald, the study's second co-author, companies will need to begin reevaluating their pricing strategies in coming years. He said, it's the nature of world telecoms, telecoms that they hate to raise prices on their consumers because they live in communities they serve. But pricing broadband services at rates that provide the highest broadband speeds at the best value to the customer allows companies to continue, to continue fulfilling their mission and serving those customers. A group formed to promote LGBTQ-owned businesses in Iowa has announced its official launch events scheduled. According to a news release, members of the newly created LGBTQ Chamber of Commerce will have access to a network of LGBTQ businesses across the state and become part of the National LGBT Chamber of Commerce. The Iowa LGBTQ Chamber will become the 77th affiliate of the national organization. Uh, Iowa LGBTQ Chair Chamber Chair Dan Jansen said in the release that the launch marks a significant step forward in our journey toward a more diverse and equitable business landscape in Iowa. The Iowa LGBTQ Chamber of Commerce will serve to champion the economic interests of LGBTQ plus entrepreneurs and professionals while fostering an environment of acceptance, respect, and growth bringing together LGBTQ plus owned businesses, allies, and corporate partners in an atmosphere of collaboration and support, Jansen said. The NGLCC is the largest advocacy organization dedicated to expanding economic opportunities and advancement for LGBTQ people, an exclusive certifying body for LGBTQ owned businesses, the release says. According to its website, NGLCC, as 1,803 certified LGBT businesses nationwide and 381 corporate partnerships. Brennan McNeil, NGLCC Senior Director of Corporate Relations, and Iowa State Auditor Rob Sand are scheduled to attend the launch event. Panelists share their thoughts on balancing AI's risk and opportunities. This is an article written by Sarah Dean of the Business Record. The artificial intelligence innovation curve is only beginning, and there are both risk and opportunities to balance along the way, according to panelists for the Business Records final power breakfast of the year, focusing on AI, and that's artificial intelligence. During the event on October 26th, the panel will share how to navigate AI as a reality rather than a future possibility, practical use cases, and potential effects on business models in the workforce. Ahead of the conversation, uh, the business record asked the panelists what makes AI both a potential opportunity and a potential risk from their perspectives, and here are their responses. This is from Tim Gifford. He's the Chief Innovation Officer at Lean Techniques. All new technologies are surrounded by opportunities and risk, and AI is no different. As a competitive advantage, intelligence is unsurpassed. It's what's helped our species rise above all other forms of known life. 
The same is true for business. The companies that win today are able to learn faster than their competitors, which means having an intelligent agent, whether real or artificial, has the ability to help companies outpace their competition. Alongside this opportunity, though, comes incredible risk. Fears that AI will replace the modern workforce, ethical concerns for society, biases that we'll have to overcome. AI brings with it the unknown, and the unknown always has associated risk. The trick is being able to not only navigate this uncertainty, but use it as a fuel to help accelerate the growth of your business. Christopher Porter, the director of Artificial Intelligence Program at Drake University, says, At a broader level, artificial intelligence is at the same time familiar and foreign, trained to mimic human life behavior, yet doing so with seemingly no awareness or agency. Is it merely a tool or something more? For businesses, AI presents the opportunity for new levels of productivity, efficiency, and the ability to accommodate a wider set of customer needs. But we still don't fundamentally understand some of our most successful models, why they make the mistakes that they make, and how to make them function fairly and transparently. And although we've grown accustomed to the power of automation, the scope of what we can successfully automate has continued to change with new AI developments, which promises both exciting breakthroughs and challenging disruptions. Joel Reisberg, Senior Vice President and Chief Information Officer at EMC Insurance, said, I think the fascination of AI stems from the unknown. That unknown is also what poses the biggest risk. We have a great responsibility to forge the path ahead with an innovative spirit, but maintain a pragmatic, balanced, graphical conduct. We are desensitized to automation in other industries like manufacturing, but to imagine automation in corporate America is intriguing and different. We're at the beginning of a seismic shift in the tools and processes that run our businesses, this shift will require companies to not only retool their talent profiles, but also those long-standing processes that keep our businesses running. I firmly believe this opportunity will help not displace knowledge workers. Customers want to talk to people in sales and service. They are seeking empathy, something AI can't deliver. But AI can enhance our ability to provide information service. We can automate the mechanical portion of the interaction and allow people to bring what cannot be automated, human connection through empathy. The unknown is also our greatest risk. This is the first instance in human history when we are not explicitly controlling the outcome. Historically, the bad actors use new technology for nefarious activities first, and protection measures often play catch-up. Our ability to change this paradigm will be important. Companies will need to enhance security tooling and processes and watch for data loss and exfiltration. And as with any new technology, user team members training will be key to address the exponential growth and more sophisticated social engineering capabilities AI will introduce. Amid so many unknowns, one thing is certain, the next year for AI will be even more groundbreaking than the last. With breakthroughs and innovation at every turn, it's imperative to keep talking about uh, ethics and responsible use. You've been listening to the business record here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicap. I'm Pat Steele, and it's been my pleasure to read for you this week. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS.